0: i <laughs> 9th, a uh, Thursday, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, and uh, happy to be joined today by, uh, second time the podcast, uh, Jim Musser from the Kentucky Hospital Association. Jim, how you doing?
1: Doing great, Trey. Thanks again for having me on. It's great to be back with you.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, as we talked about last show, uh, Jim's on is our continuing end-of-the-year coverage of the, year coverage, uh, of the uh, kind of previewing the upcoming General Assembly session uh, we had Jim on last year, and when is a very different time for the hospitals. Uh, I don't think currently is any less complex, but it, it it is definitely different based on where we're at in COVID and everything else. Um, so we'll talk about some of the priorities coming from the hospital association and uh, you know healthcare in, in in general as we look toward the general assembly session. But before we start, uh, before we get into that, let's let's start with the news. And I guess the biggest news of the day so far, uh, if you're if you're just starting to pick up on it, uh, you know. Is, is University of Louisville huge uh, changes coming? You know, there there was already huge, big rumors that Vince Tyra, their uh, athletic director, was kind of hired to pick up pieces of the Tom Jurich, uh, Rick Pitino mess. Uh, was going to Miami, and that seems like it's it's a done deal. Uh, Louisville agreed to let him out of his contract, which means Miami didn't have to pay a buyout, which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but you know, but it is what it is. Might be the ACC camaraderie, I guess. Uh, don't want don't want dissension in the ranks. Uh, but Vince Tyra is leaving for Miami. And then all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere this morning, uh, Ben DePudi, the president of uh, University of Louisville, uh, hopped on a plane and flew to Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. And she appears poised to, as, as early as today, be named as the new president of uh of Penn State University, so, you know, kind of the last person out of Louisville, turn off the lights, good lord, it's, <laughs> lose their president, their AD in one day, uh, been to Pootie by all accounts, everyone I've talked to, both legislatively, um, you know, around the city of Louisville, a very well-liked, very, uh, accomplished, uh, she, you know, I think that they would have liked for her to stay for a very long time, but Penn State's a considerably larger step up from the University of Louisville, so, uh, Congratulations to to her and you know Vince Tyra. She, you know, University of Miami is a little bit bigger deal than University of Louisville athletics. Um, so that's we'll keep an eye on that. But that looks like it's a done deal. Like I said, there obviously negotiations can fall apart. Who knows? Uh, Want to talk hit, hit uh, candidate filings real quick? Uh, not much since the last show, but there is one notable one. Paul, uh, I guess it's. Uh, Cloaker K L O E K E R, uh, who is a city commissioner in Cold Spring, has filed for uh, Joe Fisher's open seat in the 68th district up in Campbell County. That's gonna be one to watch. That's you know, Campbell County's got uh, it's uh, an interesting wing of the Republican Party hanging out up there in Campbell County. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if uh, if they're. I would assume they'll end up being a primary. Uh, Obviously, Joe Fisher was there for a long time. That seat hadn't been open for a while. We'll have to see what the map looks like. Uh, But, you know, that's, that's one to watch, especially uh, if you're kind of watching the battle between the uh, more uh, traditional Republican wings and and kind of the Trumpist uh, far, far right faction. uh, That's going to be a a significant battleground, I would assume, uh, as long as the more traditional people can get a candidate into that field. Uh, Not much else to report on the on the filings today. Uh, I'm sure we might see some more here as we we head in towards the end of the year. Obviously, the filing deadline is the first week of uh, December or first week of January. Sorry, but I would assume that's going to be pushed back. Oh, I guess there was one more. Uh, Bill Furco, who lost to Karen Berg in that special election to replace Ernie Harris uh, is uh, in in, election day 2020. Uh, He has filed to run for a full term uh, against Karen Berg, I'm assuming. That district, I would bet, gets significantly carved up. I'm not sure what it will look like, uh, but I, I would guess it looks nothing like it looks now. So that's one to keep an eye on, but who knows what that district will look like when, it's, when, they're, when they're done map drawing. Uh, want to talk a little bit, uh, Jim, about Dan Crenshaw. I had some great comments this week. I thought anybody who's listened to the show knows I'm very critical of uh, what I view as grifters in, in, in our party, Jim uh you know whether it's it's the con artists from the i, I don't even know if you can call the lincoln project republicans anymore they, you know they were anti-trump republicans now they're uh their their goal is to defeat is just to defeat republicans so i don't i don't think you can call them republicans anymore but there's no, all this
1: variety leftists
0: yes but there's all sorts of other grifters in our party dan Crenshaw had some had some comments about the freedom caucus called them grifters, performance and, and performance artists who only who know how to only know how to say slogans real well. Uh, you know, I, I totally agree <laughs> with with Dan Crenshaw. These people have accomplished nothing in elected office. They don't have the power to accomplish anything. In elected office. Nobody likes them. They don't have any level of support. And, you know, in either party, they, they couldn't get uh, a, a dinner order passed in Congress if they if they wanted it. You know, it's just it's these people are out there to, to raise money and, and they are. They are grifters. I 100 percent believe and you look at them. there. Uh, you know, Lauren Boebert paid a significant amount of personal expenses out of her campaign account. She's going to face some FEC punishment for that, it looks like. Uh, but at the same time, you have Democrats pushing, by the way, Democrats pushing FEC reforms that they want to pass that would make it legal to pay for living expenses during a campaign out of your campaign account. So, you know, you Democrats trying to enshrine grifterism in, into, into campaigns while we have people in our own party doing this. And, and I'll say this, you know, I would set aside Thomas Massey from this group. You know, I think I think Thomas Massey, people would lump him in with that bunch. But Thomas, I think, is different.
1: Uh, he's- yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely not true, Trey. You know, I worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years and Thomas isn't isn't a member of that group and you hit the nail on the head, you and Crenshaw have identified it exactly right. They say that they want conservative priorities and that the leadership needs to enact conservative priorities. But the problem was when the leadership was trying to count to 218 votes, and you have to be able to count to 218 votes every time, they kept moving the goalposts. And so the further right things went, the more the kind of mainstream members of the party were kind of dropping off. And so then the leadership would have to make a deal with the left. And so instead of getting more conservative policy, we would get more liberal policy. So if, if the Freedom Caucus uh, really wanted to be effective, They would learn to work with their own leadership and wouldn't constantly move the goalposts. They're great in the minority because they're great bomb throwers. Yeah. The whole different story when you're in the majority and you have to get legislation passed.
0: Well, and, and, you know, Thomas Massey, he picked up the ball from the Ron Paul, Justin Amash wing. You know, I mean, you you look at a lot of Thomas Massey's votes. And he, you know he's voting no, and he's it's it's the six members of the squad, and Massey voting no on stuff. You know he's right. he he at least has a set of principles beyond will this raise me money online? That that he that that he and he, you know he's not trying to get on Fox News every day. He's not out. You know he's his, he's his own beast. I would put him in, he, he's not he is not comparable to Madison Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. They're they're you know, they're very, they're very, very different. I, I, I it disappoints me when they get lumped together. That's the easy thing to do is to lump them together, but, but they're not. Now the other group, yeah, they, they are all the same, you know, P is the same pod. You know, one thing, Jimmy just mentioned, you know, saying, saying they're conservative, but then pushing things to where you end up with non-conservative policies. I, I think it's great that the U.S. Senate yesterday in a bipartisan way, uh, passed uh, a resolution. It's not, it has no real effect because it won't pass the house, but passed, uh legislation to, to stop the, stop the, uh, the mandates at the federal level for, uh, vaccines. I think it's, I think it's great. Now I'm pro, I'm as pro vaccine as anybody will find, but I think it's great because I don't think the federal government had the power to do that. Uh, but I think the flip side of that coin is if you're going to oppose that federal overreach, th- the same people who are screaming about that, also want to pass bills at a, at a state level to prevent businesses, private employers from uh, having their own personal intra, intra-company vaccine mandates, which that also, Jim, is government. It, it's the same level of government overreach as the other. It's it's like, all right, we stopped them from stealing my car keys out of my front pocket. Meanwhile, they're still my wallet out of my back. You know, you, you, you got to protect it all.
1: That's exactly right, Trey. And, and we, face that in the hospital world. Uh, Early on, about uh, hospitals and hospital systems representing about 85% of the beds in the state said we are going to have a vaccine requirement for COVID-19 like we do with the annual flu, like we do with whooping cough with measles, mumps, and rubella, there has to be an annual TB test. This is one more of those things because we can't be killing off our patients. Uh, you know, oh, the we're, thing we're, is, we're
0: losing staff in, well, in the middle of a pandemic.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what, what those hospitals were looking at was in our model, we cannot allow our patients to be exposed and we can't be a vector of infection because, you know, God forbid that, that a family member is in the hospital facing cancer or pneumonia or waiting for an organ transplant and they're exposed to, to a staff member from the hospital who hasn't been vaccinated for the flu or whooping cough or COVID-19 and we transmit that to this very vulnerable person and, and kill them. That is just not acceptable. And so a lot of our hospitals said, we're going to put this in place and make it a requirement. But a minority of our hospitals chose otherwise because their their model worked differently. And that's the way it ought to be. It ought to be left up to the private employer to make those kinds of decisions. And you're exactly right. I defy anybody to point to the place in the constitution Where the federal government has the power to tell private employers that they must vaccinate their workers against anything. Uh, State and local governments can do that because under our federal system, and I'm wearing my lawyer hat now, uh, under our federal system, the police power and control over health and welfare issues, public health issues, are within the purview of the state, not the federal government and uh, we recently talked with Attorney General Daniel Cameron about this issue, and um, we, were, we were expressing the opinion that we think that the mandate on private employers uh, is unconstitutional. I think where the, where the federal government probably has um, a stronger position, and I don't know that it will still hold up to constitutional scrutiny, but I think they're on stronger ground in saying that as a condition of participating in Medicare and Medicaid, you have to vaccinate and, your work. And
0: I, I actually, and I actually think that uh, requiring—and this is a state level thing—I I believe that requiring uh, uh a, a people who, who who agree to sign, who, who request uh, Medicaid, requiring them to become vaccinated, I, I think that that's that's something that we should look at because if you're if you're a, if you're a fiscal conservative, you're looking at the bottom line, and it's you know between 50 to $70,000 per hospital stay for, for COVID related illness, you know, that's, if you're on the taxpayer dime for that, the taxpayers should have some level of control over, over, over those costs. And the only way to do that is, is to require vaccination in, in, in exchange for participation in Medicaid. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I just, I have a serious problem. I had a, a state representative tell me this, Jim, which he said, my, my business is, is at my house. So you're telling me that I can't mandate that people work for me in my own house where my children live. I can't require that they be vaccinated as a condition for coming to work for me. That, you know, there, there's a there's, a, there's a, per, a private property rights issue involved in the state saying that you cannot rec- that you, you can or cannot require vaccination. And yeah. to me, it's bigger than it's the same thing that we fought for years with 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 uh, with right to work. It's, yes. it's, 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 it's tagging conditions to employment. And, you know, for, for a party that fought so hard to get right to work passed to come and say that, and, and, and put additional limits on the employer employee relationship, that's not, that's not conservative. <laughs> any, any conservative who claims that they're being conservative by passing this legislation doesn't understand conservatism. <laughs> ah, it's frustrating. <laughs>
1: I think there's I think there's a lot of the education that that needs to be done. Um, one of the things that we're working on at the hospital is trying to give members good information. You know, I think a lot of people uh, look at it through a very political lens. For the hospital, the vaccinations are about health, and you know, we're not overly concerned with what the what the federal policy is or the state policy is except in as much as we want to protect the health of our patients and our employees in our hospitals. Um, unfortunately, lots of people with political agendas have politicized the vaccine, and it's come to our attention that the public schools have not done a particularly good job educating people about vaccines and their safety and efficacy. Um, little, little science history, vaccines are highly efficacious, you know, When's the last time that you heard of someone dying or being injured by polio? Yeah. When's the last time that that you heard of a child dying from whooping cough? And you haven't because the vaccines are safe and efficacious and we don't even think about them anymore.
0: I mean, no- noted vaccine advocates, George Washington, Catherine the Great. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not talking the 21st century in- invention here.
1: Yes. Uh, Even with the COVID vaccines, you know, I've heard a number of people say, oh, well, these are new vaccines. Well, not exactly. The mRNA technology has been around since the 1980s. It's just that it was applied to vaccines for the first time during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what I often stress to Republican friends who uh, have concerns in this area is do you think that president Trump would have put his name and prestige on the line that he would have committed hundreds of billions of dollars to hire the best and brightest minds to put this vaccine together and get it into our arms. If he thought it was going to be a failure. And I think most of them thought it was fine when president Trump was there, but then when the new administration came in and started trying to force people and use coercive tactics to, uh, to enforce vaccine mandates, I think it then then became so politicized that they kind of uh, they kind of forget the value of the vaccine because they're opposed to the method that the other side is using, and, and yeah. we shouldn't lose sight of the value of the vaccine because the other side is using tactics that we don't approve of.
0: No, I yeah, to- totally agree. Um, all right, let's let's get into uh, General Assembly twenty two uh, as we talked about with J C Young of the. Uh, Commissioner magistrates on Monday it's going to be an interesting session because for the first time in a long time there's there's money to be spent it's mostly one-time money um, but you know the, the general Assembly's got to figure out how to how to, how to spend this spend this cash is being injected by uh, the economy but by the federal government um, you know obviously the hospitals will will want some of that to help continue to try to prop up some of the more struggling hospitals coming through the the pandemic uh, we talked about that uh, at length last year when when you're on, um, kind of walk me through the, the the top line, kind of the top couple of priorities that, that the hospital association is looking at when when they gavel in in January.
1: Thanks, Trey. yes, we are we are interested in having uh, a portion of those funds, the federal funds, the ARPA funds, uh, are available for use for retention and training and recruitment of staff. And we would very much like for Kentucky to follow the same model that Arkansas used. Uh, it's similar to one that's been used in Texas and Kansas and several other states where they allocated, the Arkansas model is $9,000 per license bed for each hospital to then use that to pay bonuses uh, for those frontline healthcare workers who have been so great to be there all through the pandemic, who were risking their lives, their health, time with their families, to save others, to help others to heal, and we really need to recognize those folks because there's a lot of burnout. You know, when you when you're consistently putting in 70-hour weeks, week after week after week. And you see lots of people who are very sick. And because the way things have worked, uh, our healthcare heroes have often been the ones who have been holding the hands of the dying because family members couldn't be with them. And there are a lot of them who really have been subjected to a lot of trauma. And we'd like to be able to have those funds to help show our appreciation to all of those frontline workers I'm thinking nurses particularly, but not just for nurses, but uh, for those frontline healthcare workers who have given so much and have been under so much pressure for over a year. And of course, the hospitals are in a, in a tough position. Uh, losses have amounted to statewide around $2 billion. And while we praise Senator McConnell and our Kentucky delegation for the federal help that they funneled into the state, that covered about a billion dollars. And so there's well over a billion dollars that hospitals are are still having to contend with those losses. And so this kind of funding would be of huge value to us, particularly, uh, there's a lot of pressure for nurses to leave the state to go travel where they can make a whole lot more money as traveling nurses.
0: Well, I, I know my wife said there's nurses that are that are signed up to be locums at her, her hospital, and then being assigned right back to the hospital and making you know two thirds above what they were making previously, doing the same exact job.
1: Well, that's that's exactly right. And uh, much as we love them, those numbers are are unsustainable. Um, the well,
0: and I, and I don't think you know to kind of, kind of stick with the, with the healthcare hero stuff for a second, I don't think people understand the amount of concern and the, uh, the breaking point that, you know, I, I live with one it's is why I, you know, and, and I, I talked to a lot of other, uh, specifically husbands who are, who are buried to, to physicians and they're, I mean, they see this, they see the news about Omicron And I see a lot of them looking for ways to get out of, out of healthcare, just, you know, they mentally, they cannot fathom going through another Delta variant type spike. There, there is a a mental and physical burnout point that we are reaching, which isn't just going to have an effect on COVID. It's going to be a 30 to 40 year impact on healthcare accessibility and availability across the country. If we can't do something to, uh, and, and it's it's not just going to be money either. I mean, it's, it's there, you know, you're going to have to have to figure out ways to deal with not just the, the, pop, the financial impact, but the mental impact. Uh, I, I don't think people understand the precipice that we're, that we're on with healthcare staff.
1: Well, that's, ex- that's exactly right. It's a, a case that we are facing a demographic black swan. The, the issue was there before COVID-19, but COVID-19 has, shown a very bright spotlight on it, Trey. It's a case of we don't have enough new workers coming through the pipeline, not just nurses, but it's nurses, physical therapists, doctors, everywhere along the continuum of care. We're simply not replacing them at the rate that they're going to be retiring because you think about it, the baby boom generation is is huge numbers wise. And they're living longer. Yeah. And as they are retiring, They're leaving that gap because not enough are are coming in to replace them at exactly the same time that they are retiring. And so they're going to be demanding more health care themselves because all of the baby boom generation is now either retirement eligible or soon will be. And so all that demand will be put on the system right at the time when there's going to be a serious worker shortage. And so one of the other things that we're talking to members of the General Assembly about We've reached out to some of the four-year schools. We've reached out to KCTCS, which uh, really is is eager to be a a good partner, I think, in training more more nurses, in getting more physical therapists, respiratory therapists, uh, CNAs, LPNs, RNs. We need everybody along the continuum, and we've been so pleased with uh, the initial responses we've heard from KCTCS, uh, the community and technical college system. Uh, in in looking to work with us to train more people for all of the allied health fields.
0: Well, I I'll tell you, you know, I, I think that's another thing that we're gonna have to work on too. Which is, used to, you had families of doctors. You know, doctors beget doctors. That you know, yes. the, the, you can and you could. If you live in a small town, you could see Doctor Smith until he retired. Then you saw Doctor Smith's son. You know, but I, I know of very few physicians right now who would who would recommend or are encouraging their children to pursue medicine. Very few. They, they feel underappreciated. And this was before COVID even hit. They felt underappreciated. They felt, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pe- people pay more attention to WebMD than they do to the advice that they get when they come in to see them. And then you pile every, their, you know, the fatality of their experiences through COVID on top of it. And, you know, it's, it, 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 if you don't have the doctors and it, it's kind of a, a compounding problem, if you don't have enough doctors, then you have to rely on more nurses. Well, nurses don't have the same training hours, the same requirements, the same education. So not only are you struggling to cover the amount of people who you have, but you also are, are, are getting just a lower standard of care. And that's not to insult nurses. It's 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 a fact, that's a fact of yeah. the fact of, of the, the certification and education process. And you know, so fewer doctors means you need more nurses <laughs> when you're already having a nurse shortage. So it's just, it's this, it's this you know, downhill problem that, but again, it's doctors aren't even encouraging their kids to become doctors because it's gotten, they're just, they're burnout and, and feeling underappreciated by the patients they serve and, and the systems they that they work in. They all think that, you know, whether they're liberal or conservative, they think the American healthcare system is broken. They all have different ways they think they can fix it, but it's just, it, it's, it's it's a mess right now on on, on recruitment and retention.
1: Well, that's exactly right, and one of the problems we face here in Kentucky too is having a sufficient number of graduate medical education slots uh, allotted here in the state, and particularly for rural Kentucky, it's a yeah. it's a real issue, and it's one that uh, KHA and the KMA are working together to try and find ways to incentivize. Uh, more of those GMEs to come here to Kentucky and to make sure then that once we've got the docs here training them that they stay in the state. You know, it's, it's very hard to recruit somebody uh, to some of our rural areas when they can make more money in Louisville or Cincinnati or Chicago. And so often what happens is people are trained and then they, they leave the state. So that's, that's one of those other conundrums that, that we are working with. And any, any bright minds that are within the sound of my voice, we welcome input on how we can help to cut this Gordian knot that we're facing. Because first and foremost, hospitals are places of healing. Our job is to restore the patient's health. In order to do that, we have to be viable businesses as well. We have to be able to cover all the expenses. Most of Kentucky's hospitals are nonprofits. And so it's a it's a matter of they've got to be able to, to cover all of their costs and then make enough money to invest in plant and equipment and training and retention and recruitment and all of those other things that go with running the business. And I've, I've probably said this to you before, Trey, so I'm sorry to be a broken record. Okay. But, you know... Hospitals, while they are first and foremost places of healing and compassionate care, they are also economic engines. They have to be in a community for there to be economic growth. Not only do they provide lots of good paying jobs themselves, but think about it. What entrepreneur is going to bring a business into a community where she can't get healthcare for her family and her workers? You know, what what company is going to relocate or start a new part of their business in a community where there isn't a hospital and so we really do have to make sure that our hospitals are solid viable businesses so that they can provide the compassionate care and so that they can help be that crucial element in a community that that helps bring economic development so there's there's my spiel
0: well, let's let's stay on that topic we were kind of getting into it and I got distracted on the on the the, the burnout uh, stuff. Uh, you know, hospitals, he said, lost about $2 billion in the state since the beginning of the pandemic. You know, that was, there was some uh, money brought brought back in through uh, the, the variety of, of, of bills that were passed uh, for the code relief bills. Kind of where, where does the, the uh, uh, dissemination of that money stand and, and kind of where, where are the, where are the hospitals at, and what are the needs there coming coming into session?
1: Well, I think uh, part of the part of the question I can only give you is we don't know because the federal government uh, hasn't been particularly transparent in the way the funds have been distributed, and uh, particularly for our rural communities, it's been difficult. We have asked for some flexibility too in the way that. Uh, the money is recognized because sometimes in our, in our larger systems, there are parts of it that are losing money hand over fist and parts that are stable. And we'd like to be able to make sure that that money is, is being recognized as going to where it's actually needed in those ones that are, are losing lots of money rather than being attributed to the ones that are stable Uh, because that tempts the federal government then to want to claw it back. I've just got to tell you, Trey, we have been so fortunate. You know, Kentucky is a small state, but our federal delegation really does box above its weight. I can't say enough good things about how helpful they have been to the hospitals. Senator McConnell has been just a tremendous champion. Uh, Senator Paul has been right there at his shoulder helping our hospitals over on the House side gosh, Representative Guthrie has been so good on the Energy and Commerce Committee looking and, out for And, for and, and, by, and by the way, real
0: quick, best wishes to, to, to Brett. Uh, came out yesterday. He's got a breakthrough case of COVID. He says he's feeling all right. Uh, he is not just by my own account, uh, literally by vote, the nice member of Congress. Uh, you know, uh, good, good wishes to Brett. Hope he gets well soon. Anyway, continue.
1: <laughs> uh, I will. I will echo that. And I. I've got to say, Andy Barr was right there every time we needed him. Uh, just really kicking the bureaucrats' butts to get PPE into the state because what we were finding was uh, the federal government was saying, "Oh, we've got to send these things to hotspots, our hospitals." were ordering things and then they were being diverted. Yeah, representative Barr was so great about jumping in. the whole The whole delegation has has just been great throughout the pandemic, and we appreciate their support so much. Uh, Chairman yarmouth has has really used his spot on the budget committee to try and make sure that hospitals weren't taking Medicare and Medicaid cuts during the midst of the pandemic. I like I said, the whole delegation has really been supportive of our, our hospitals and we are so appreciative of that. You know, we've we've got to have that kind of support so that we can treat our patients. It always comes back to the patients.
0: Absolutely. Um so at the at the state level rolling in, kind of what what's what are, what are the what are the big ass? Obviously the hero pay thing is gonna be it's gonna be debated. It sounds like something will get done. It sounds like the sticking point there is the governor wants to loop in like grocery store workers and stuff. And I think the General Assembly wants to keep it more to more to frontline healthcare. Uh, which, which, you know, and I would say, Jim, personally, I would say, you know, when you go to war, it's not just the people that are out fighting the battle. There's like the, you know, there's the KPs, the cooks and the stuff in the back who who are supporting sure. the frontline trips. So that thing, I think I should get a check too, Jim, for being that frontline, you know, the, the cook for the frontline worker. I think people like me should also, you know, get a little something for the effort.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you there, Trey. I
0: am here. Uh, but but beyond that, uh, you know, obviously it's a budget session, so there's always going to be uh, there's always going to be stuff about Medicare, uh, Medicaid floating around. Uh, do we even have Medicaid managed care contracts yet? Did they resolve that situation? Do you know? Uh, those
1: are those are still in litigation, as I understand. <laughs> um, Two years later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, it it poses a number of challenges uh, you know for everybody involved for the for the mcos for the hospitals for the doctors and quite frankly for people in the state trying to administer the program so it's just it's not a good situation all the way around but how, how yeah.
0: has the relationship been since they've rolled out this this ex, it's a single pbm experiment how's the relationship been with with the hospitals as far as reimbursement for uh, pharmaceutical, uh, uh, repayments on, on, on Medicaid. Have you heard anything from your, from your members on that front? I, I had heard one, one thing that there was an issue with, uh, it wasn't hospital is was more independent pharmacies, not wanting to fill, uh, opioid uh, addiction recovery prescriptions because they were, were whatever the formulary didn't set the reimbursement rate even to cover the, sh- the shipment costs, much less the pills. Uh, but have you all heard any any issues or complaints that out of membership on on the single PBM issue?
1: I, I have not at this point, Trey. But uh, let's do this again next year and and check with me at that point. <laughs> I tell you what the what one of the issues that I I see arising. Um, I don't know if you were were following the case over in Ohio or not, but a jury there found that. CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid were acting as a public nuisance by filling legally valid prescriptions for legal drugs. And I think that there could be a real problem for our patients if that stands up when when it goes to appeal. Because, you know, it's kind of a novel concept. That you would somehow be punished for doing something that was completely legal and in fact you have a legal obligation to do. Not not, not only that, but you don't
0: have the expertise to override. Yeah, I've had I had
1: this discussion with
0: my wife when when that case came down. Basically, you're empowering pharmacists to be doctors and to over to in fact to be to be Uber doctors, because you have the final say to override the the prescription recommendations of a physician at that point.
1: Yes, it, it turns the whole practice of medicine uh, regulatory scheme on its head. And it's just it's really, you know, again, wearing my my lawyer hat and I am a I am a licensed lawyer here in Kentucky. Uh, it's kind of astounding to me that under Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence, to which we are the fortunate heirs, we would suddenly be holding people responsible uh, for something that is perfectly legal. You know, it's just uh, it, it doesn't make much sense to me. And I think that uh, that it portends bad things and it sets a very, very bad precedent.
0: Well, and I, and I think it bleeds into what you've seen at hospitals this year. And, you know, it, I think the Ohio courts dealt with it more than more the Kentucky courts, uh, but it bleeds into these people coming in and demanding that they be uh, given horse dormer in the hospital over, over the over the over the recommendations or the policies set policies of the hospital. And then in some cases going to going to court to demand that the judge override the physicians. It's, it's insanity. Like, again, you get back to why doctors feel un, un, unappreciated. You have people coming in and they're coming in and saying, Hey, give me this. <laughs> it, that, that's
1: how it that works. Well, and what you're saying kind of ties in nicely with one of the things that, that, uh, We are looking for, and we're working with the KMA on this one, Um, we are going to put forward a compassionate patient support bill. There's a federal law on the books that says no information blocking, and we don't want information blocking either. We think that's a very bad idea. We think patients should have access to their records, but the way it's currently set up and it allows the state to make an exception to the federal rule, but the federal rule says if you go in and you have a test done, as soon as that test goes into the MyChart system, you should have immediate access to it. And unfortunately, patients sometimes get those and they don't have access immediately to their doctor. And they're seeing results that they don't understand, and sometimes they're horrible results and they need the doctor to be right there to talk to them so that they can explain what the options are, what's the prognosis, if there's a, if there's a means of treatment. You know, if, if it were me and I looked at my chart and saw that the test results indicated that I had stage four cancer, I'd certainly want to immediately be talking with my doctor about that. And unfortunately, as the system works at the moment, if I'm getting that news on Friday evening at six o'clock, as soon as it's been put into the system, my doctor may not see that until Monday, probably won't see it until Monday. Or, you know, if, if my doctor is a surgeon, they may be taking care of other patients. And so there's going to be a gap when I'm left to struggle with that on my own. And we think that that is not very compassionate. We think that the the patient needs to have immediate access to the professional advice and, quite frankly, the emotional support that a trained medical professional can provide in those circumstances. And so we're going to be seeking this compassionate patient support bill, which would allow for a 72 hour delay so that the doctor has an opportunity to review the chart first So that when the patient sees it, the doctor is prepared to talk to them to, you know, to lend that emotional support and to provide the professional advice and counsel that the patient is going to need. It will also help to avoid, and and this was one in my personal life, have a friend um, whose mom is in her 80s, but she's tech savvy. She'd been to the doctor, um, had a couple of tests. She knew how to open my chart. She read the results. And she freaked out. She thought she was dying. She was going to spend the weekend getting her affairs in order, and she couldn't get to the doctor. This was this was a case of Friday afternoon at, at 4 o'clock, and she couldn't get a hold of the doctor until Monday morning. So all weekend, she probably took a year off of her life with the worry that she had until she could actually talk to the doctor on Monday morning. And the doctor reassured her, no, what you've got is completely treatable because she did exactly what you're talking about, Trey. She had gone to WebMD and looked it up and was convinced that she was dying. And so there's no substitute for having that professional guidance from your physician. And particularly in, in those cases where the news is bad, we want to make sure that the patient has the kind of support that they need. So that's a that's an important piece of legislation. We're also uh, grappling with an issue and it's not just hospitals it's hospitals nursing homes uh, mental health providers it's hospice there's a transport issue patients aren't a big being, one. Trans- big one. Yeah, yeah patients aren't being transported in a timely manner uh, and I'm not necessarily even referring to 911, although I understand in parts of the states there are 911 issues, But what I'm really referring to is moving patients to an appropriate level of care. I was in talking with one of the members of the legislature and she said, "Oh, I'm very well aware of this. I had a, a constituent who was burned in a garage fire. He's burned over 50 percent of his body. He was rushed to the local uh, critical access hospital but he then languished for seven or eight hours until they could get transport to transport him to the burn unit in Louisville. The guy was going in and out of consciousness. He was in agony, and there are literally scores of those examples from all over the state, including patients who have expired waiting for transport. You know, there are areas of the state where you just don't have all of the services that you might want at the local critical access hospital. And so if the ambulance service isn't available, can't come, won't come, the patient is left to languish. And we surveyed our hospitals and the wait times are on average eight hours. And we've literally had patients who have, have passed away waiting for help. You know, if you're having a heart attack or you're having a stroke, you probably are going to need things that the local critical access hospital can't provide. And you have that golden hour. I'm sure you've heard of the golden hour yep. in which if you receive treatment, your outcomes are, are likely to be quite good. And if it's outside that golden hour, the outcomes are likely to be very poor and potentially fatal. And unfortunately, the Kentucky Board of Emergency Medical Services has put a regulatory regime in place that makes it very difficult for ambulance providers to do the things that are necessary to get the patients the care that they need. Um, It always comes back to the patients and healthcare is a team sport And we love our ambulance providers and we think the paramedics and EMTs are great and we know that they want to save lives, but we've got to have their help to save those lives and get the patients to where they need to be.
0: What's what's the change that needs to happen to fix it?
1: Well, I think there are are a number of things that could be done. But first and foremost, uh, we would like to change the regulatory regime so that uh, it's easier to get a certificate of need. We, uh, we in the hospital world are not opposed to the certificate of need system. We see value in it. We think that it, it uh, helps our healthcare market to be the sixth least expensive in the country. But to get a CON for an ambulance, it can take up to two years and you still may not get it while it's being examined during that time, because basically, Trey, if you want to start an ambulance service in Fayette County, you have to have permission from all of the current providers to allow you to come in and do that. And what we're saying is, let's put it under the expedited review, which reverses the presumption. The presumption normally is you have to prove that there is a need under expedited review, the presumption is that there is a need and your potential competitors can always step forward and show that the need is being met. But what we know for a fact is the need is not being met in large swaths of the state. Uh, It's not just a Lexington and Louisville problem. It's not just an Eastern Kentucky problem. It's a problem over, over much of the state. There are areas where it works well, where the system is working and the ambulance providers do a, a, a great job, but really what we are seeing is a regulatory regime that puts up barriers to entry and really it leaves the patients in a, in a bad situation. We've gotta have, we've gotta have uh, our patients getting to where they need to be. We had a case tray and, and I, I won't mention the hospital but a young woman was suicidal. She was taken to her local community hospital, which does not have a behavioral health unit. This was again, a case of five o'clock, six o'clock on on Friday. And what happened was this hospital called the Ridge here in Lexington. The Ridge said, oh yes, we've got a bed. We have, have ability to take care of her. She meets all the criteria, send her right on. The ambulance service simply refused to move her. They said, we don't move behavioral health patients. And so this child, she was was a teenager. This child was trapped in a bare room under observation for days because they had to get a court order. On, On Monday, they were able to get a court order. She arrived Friday evening. On Monday, they were able to get a judge to give a court order to have the sheriff move her from this community hospital to Lexington, just a few miles away.
0: That's got to be scarring for somebody already going through a mental health crisis to have to be loaded into a sheriff's car and kept over the weekend in a, in a bare room with nobody treating you.
1: No, nobody can look at this and say that that it's right. It's, it's not right. And what we've heard from our colleagues uh, in the, in the behavioral health world is this is routine that, that, behavioral health patients are refused transport, but we also hear it from hospice. Our our friends at hospice have told us that it is very common for the ambulance service to refuse to move a hospice patient. They're ready to be discharged. They're dying. They're under hospice care, and their last wish is to die in their own home, and they don't have that last wish granted because the ambulance refuses to to move them. And there are all sorts of regulatory reasons for that. And that regulatory regime really needs to be overhauled.
0: Um, somewhat on, on topic, not necessarily General Assembly, but just more curious. How is the uh the issue with with getting patients transferred? You know, I know at the height, especially at Delta, you know, there were physicians calling from Texas up to Kentucky trying to get patients. Transferred for a variety of, of of issues. Is that is that issue uh, kind of lightened up, or is it still a, you know being able to get people placed in beds for different uh, transfer for different ailments? Is that still a, a huge issue, or is it kind of kind of died down at the moment?
1: Um, it's a it's a gradation, right? It was it was beyond critical at the height of the Delta variant. In fact, one of our hospitals called 22 different counties, and called out of state to try and get a patient transferred. And nobody could come, nobody would come, and the patient was left to, to die.
0: I, I've heard my wife's uh, physician group, she's, she's on Facebook, they, they were actually arranging transfers over the Facebook group, conversing with other physicians, and there were multiple occasions where they couldn't get it done in time, and that had patients
1: pass. And again I don't want it to to sound like we're beating on the paramedics or the EMTs because we understand they are doing what they can do within the limits that are prescribed by the Kentucky Board of Emergency Medical Services and I think that's you know that's where it has to be addressed in the in that regulatory regime K Beams K Beams has got to address some of these things During the height of the pandemic, we were allowed, you know, they have worker shortages too, and and we would be the first to acknowledge that because there are worker shortages in the hospital. It's all along the continuum of care. Um, And they'll say, well, you know, we can't do these runs. We don't have the workers and so forth. But again, K-Beams has done things to themselves to to make it more difficult. Um, At the height of the pandemic, they were permitting a nurse to ride along with the patient on a patient transport. And later on, they said, okay, no more of this. It has to be a paramedic. It has to be a paramedic driving the the bus and it has to be a paramedic in the back of the bus too. And we've said, well, you know, couldn't someone else be trained as the driver so that, you know, you kind of double your number of paramedics if you don't have to have one driving and they can all be in the back of the bus. Uh, Didn't want to do that. Didn't want to have a nurse who could ride along it's like you know we're trying to offer solutions but the regulatory regime that they've put in place simply won't allow
0: it now it's not the time to be territorial here guys
1: <laughs> exactly. um, uh,
0: what what so we've kind of gone through pure, the peer money asks uh, talked about a couple of a couple of uh, uh, regulatory issues kind of what what else are you all focused on beyond beyond the normal things of you know please don't further cut our funding <laughs> Um <laughs> Uh, which is and every two year request. Uh, kind of what what else are you guys going to be focused on as, as we as we roll into this session?
1: Well, we always caution our friends in the General Assembly. You know, I ascribe only the very best of intentions, and I'm quite quite serious. I really do ascribe the very best of intentions in their plans for medical marijuana, but it's a mistake, uh, and we caution them about that you know if you want to treat marijuana as a recreational thing much the same way that we would treat alcohol that's a different story but calling it medicine it's not medicine there have been no peer reviewed studies that indicate that there is medical efficacy and safety involved we don't know what a dose constitutes and 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 i find
0: it i find it very confusing that the hemp and the medicinal marijuana people don't it's not just that they that they don't want it they actively push back against doing clinical trials to to find the actual efficacy of these of of, of these substances like i i i just i find that very and i don't know if it's rooted in in a a hatred of of big pharma quote unquote or you know what it is but you know they can help their cause and we have one of the top of uh, pharmaceutical testing programs, of the country at the University of Kentucky. Like I, I don't, Absolutely. I don't, I don't understand why they wouldn't openly embrace. Like, hey, yeah, let's test this thing out so we can get it legalized.
1: Yes, and Dr. Danny Bentley on the House Committee on Health and Welfare and Family Services, and Chairwoman Mosier on that committee, both have put forward and co-sponsored each other's legislation that would take things that very direction. And of course, there's also that other little problem. And again, I I constantly am putting on my lawyer hat today, but there is that little problem of marijuana is illegal at the federal level. It's, it's still, you know, classified as, as a dangerous narcotic and, you know, maybe their efforts would be better spent decriminalizing at the federal level, rather than trying to can, can, uh, you, can you even do pharmacy, can you even do pharmaceutical tests on it right now because it's still criminalized
0: at the federal level?
1: Uh, you can apply for permission, and special permission can can be granted to do that. Um, so certainly the folks over at, at UK, you know, assuming that assuming all the other things were put in place for them to do it, they could they could be granted permission to do that. Um, Chairwoman Mosier has had uh, pretty comprehensive. Uh, legislation in the past on on this issue and so again we want to protect our patients we don't know what the interaction is between marijuana and other drugs that they might be taking we don't again we don't know what a dose is you know is a dose three brownies well how much did you put in the three brownies <laughs> is, is, a, is a dose two tokes well you know how to strong fi- is the marijuana how much the final lid d- you know <laughs> Come
0: on. And, and yeah, you know, and, and also you put you put physicians in a, in a hard spot because,
1: exactly.
0: you know, you're trying to treat them as you were trained as a physician. And so, like nuts and, oh, no, I want this or I've been self-medicating with that. And like, OK, but, you know, as a physician, you can't both ethically or legally recommend something that you have no idea the, the, how it's going to affect or, uh, like you said, interact with other other pharmaceuticals you may be on
1: it puts our physicians in just an absolutely untenable position and, and we don't want to do that to them. And look, the hospitals are all about taking care of patients and healing people and helping them to be better. And if you go through the right channels and you show us that this is, this is a safe and effective drug. Sure. Let's do that. But we haven't done those things. So let's, let's not practice medicine without a license. Let's not practice pharmacy without a license. Let's do the things that are necessary, and if what the real ambition is is to simply say let's legalize marijuana, then let's just be open about that and 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 say you know we want this treated the same way that we treat alcohol, and move move forward with that. But let's not confuse the issue.
0: And especially because that's a whole that's a like you said it's a whole different issue. It's a whole different product and regulatory thing. You know I I, I attacked. Uh, Governor Bashir repeatedly during the campaign when he was proposing legalizing medicinal marijuana and he was similarly simil- proposing that he would raise money for the state for state revenue by taxing medicinal marijuana. Well, pharmaceuticals in the state are't taxed. So That's what you're right. saying is is we need to help give relief to these people with terminal cancer and we're going to do so with medicinal marijuana and we're going to tax it. <laughs> so like, you're, you're literally trying to tax dying people. Like that, that it was. I I repeatedly said it was a cold and heartless and a horrible proposition. That you know, if you want to legalize it, fine. If you want to legalize marijuana to to raise revenue, fine. Legalize marijuana. Don't do this medicinal thing. If you want to, if you believe it's a medicine, fine. Study it. Figure out how you can do it effectively and go that route. But you can't. You can't take this middle ground because that's the cruelest of all options. You're saying we want to make money off of dying people. It's awful.
1: For us, it always comes back to what can we do to help our patients to restore their health? Um, so we want to make sure that anything that is being prescribed, anything that they're ingesting is going to be to their benefit. And, you know, we, simp- we simply don't know and can't know how, how marijuana can be used at this point.
0: Um. Just a question I was curious about. You know, the the Trump administration pushed a, a number of different healthcare policies that uh, were were fairly populist. You know, pretty pretty anti, uh, not anti pharma, not anti, kind of anti medical establishment in general, and trying to put some power back in the hands of the people. I guess you could say. Where is the uh, the uh, price transparency? policies that he pushed. I know there was some court challenges. Um, I don't know what the Biden administration has done with them. Uh, I haven't really heard much about that issue for for about a year or so. But where, where's the, the price transparency stuff at?
1: Well, uh, in full disclosure, so that you're, you're Listeners know I was part of the Trump administration. I was at the Department of Labor. I was a senior advisor to Secretary Acosta who was the secretary at that time. And uh, we were pushing association health plans um, as a, a great way of expanding private health insurance coverage. So we were doing lots of things like that. On the issue of transparency, let me start off by saying i don't know of any hospital that is opposed to price transparency what we have under the under the regulations will not result in that we're ordered to publish certain things it's you know this this data has to be made public and and machine readable and we want shoppable services the problem is We can put all that information out there, but it doesn't really mean anything because the charges that would be shown are not the charges that anybody actually pays. Yeah. What we think they're really trying to get at is patients need to know how much is going to come out of my personal pocket for, you know, hernia repair or that's
0: dependent upon your insurance company, the deal they've cut with the provider.
1: Exactly. And every insurance company has their own deal. So it's not going to be uniform uh, across insurers and it's not going to be uniform across hospitals. So the price transparency from that standpoint is not going to be there. Um, They really need to be looking for information from insurance companies as opposed to hospitals. The other part is if you're, if you're, Wanting this to be a shoppable service, then we have to change all of the incentives in the system. Because if Trey Watson goes to Dr. Watson and Dr. Watson says, Trey, you need to go see Dr. Alvarado, who's a specialist in this, you're going to go see Dr. Alvarado, who's a specialist in it. You will probably check with your insurance to make sure that Dr. Alvarado and the hospital where he works are in network, they're in network. And other than that, that's what you're really going to be concerned with. You're not going to say, okay, thanks, Dr. Watson, for that advice. And now I'm going to try and find three other doctors at three other hospitals, because you have no incentive to do that. Once you realize that, you know, you're in network, the service is covered, you're good to go. So the whole system is, is set up not with incentives for you to, to shop. Yeah. And the thing is, if you do shop, it does not necessarily inure to your benefit. It inures to the benefit of the insurance company because it's simply a way for the insurance company to pay less. So, you know, okay, I can look at this and I see maybe the service is cheaper at hospital B than it was at hospital A, What does that say about the quality? Is the quality as good at Hospital B? Am I going to get the same level of service at Hospital B? So all of those things are incentives that, that have to be reorganized if the, if the idea is to have real transparency and to have shoppable services, because as we're currently set up, just doesn't work that way and it's not going to work that way until we change the incentives.
0: Well, I'll say this. There's, there's, I think there's, occasions where people would like to know because they some, some things they might want to pay out of pocket uh for example i had a procedure done uh last year and, and they actually kind of criticized oh we wish we had, you hadn't have told us that you had insurance because they're probably not going to cover this but since you told us that you have insurance we're going to have to charge you the insurance negotiated cost that you're going to pay out of pocket if we did if we didn't know that you had insurance you it'd be like five hundred dollars less out of pocket <laughs> but since you told us like we have to charge you this because of the agreement we have the insurance company, you know, i, I almost wish Swiss admit that, that, that you could have like, here's the prices you would pay if you walked in off the street and you're just going to pay cash, pay cash money. This is what it is. And then a note to it, like actual costs, please, you know, see, see your insurance company. But, you know, I think at the very least, it, I don't think it's that. It's that unreasonable to, to have that out of pocket. You know, if you're going to come in and, and cut us a check for the service. You know, but, but at the same time, I think one of the things people get frustrated with is, is the, the charges that pop up. And I, I know the federal government's tried a bunch to, to stop that. But at the same time, it's not like you're getting your car worked on where they, you know, they're, they're in and they got the transmission out and they see that, you know, you got a, a an issue over here with, with the radiator, too. They can't just pick up the phone and call you back. Hey, we found this. You want us to go ahead and fix that? Here's here's what it's going to cost. You know, no, they got your chest open. They can't really stop to ask you if you want us to fix this other thing while we're in there. Like, they got to go. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, I think people want to think of it like car shopping or getting a computer fixed or something, but it's not, it's not necessarily comparable.
1: No, it isn't. And, and you really hit on a big part of it too. You know, the not 800 pound gorilla, but one ton gorilla in the room is the federal government you know you look at you look at all the bizarre things that take place in healthcare and the vast majority of them you can trace back to some bureaucrat in Washington DC who's coming between the provider and the patient
0: and and you know it, and it's people always come up with these grand ideas oh you know we should replace our healthcare system with this or that you know move it to this but the problem is is that the healthcare economy in this country is massive you can't just come in and say, oh, we're going to change it to this. You can't even really incrementally change it. So what you've got is fixes piled on top of fixes and, you know, duct tape on bailing wire, on, on scotch tape, on packing tape. And, you know, I, I don't think that there's any way to unravel it and and fix I, I I don't know. I don't know how you go about fixing the problems because they're so endemic, but they're also so rooted that... I, and, and and again, this is not like this is not like any other service you can't have. And I say the same thing about policing, too. You know, you, you, you can't have like, hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to close down for the week. We're going to retrain. We're going to we're going to install some new software. Uh, we'll come back on Tuesday and we'll all be good to go. Like you can't know you can't do that. <laughs> and I don't even know how you fix it at the federal level with just because of what it is.
1: We are frequently flying the plane and fixing the plane at the same time. And that can't help but make things difficult and complex. And the thing is too, Trey, you know, the Medicare system was put in place in 1965 and it hasn't been updated in a comprehensive way since then. But if you think about 1965 and what else has changed since then, Including the practice of medicine, oh yeah, the world the world has moved on, but the law really hasn't, and uh, I'm afraid we're about to hit uh, a real crisis point, a real inflection point, because the report of the federal trustees for Social Security and Medicare, their latest report that was out late summer, does not bear glad tidings of great joy no. for this Christmas season. You know the the trust fund for Medicare is on on schedule to hit zero come four or five years from now. And with the expansions that are being anticipated in the Build Back Better program, that'll happen even sooner. And what that means is not that the system goes completely belly up, but what it means is Medicare at that point can only pay out what it's taking in because the trust fund is empty. And so there will have to be serious cuts in services.
0: That that, that R word that people hate, rationing.
1: Well, that's it. And so here's the thing that just fact of life. Healthcare is in fact a commodity. There are only so many doctors and nurses, so many hospitals, so many pharmaceutical manufacturers. And so our services are going to be rationed and they can be rationed one of two ways, essentially, either by the government and you have a national health service like they have in Britain, where you wait seven years to get a hernia repair operation. Yep. And there are all sorts of horror stories because you're going you're going to be rationed one way or the other. You know, you're going to pay higher taxes
0: Go go, go, to, to, go to the U.S.-Canadian border. There's a reason there's a ton, especially hospitals in the Detroit area right across the Windsor because they exactly can't they can't the get those surgeries in Canada.
1: That's exactly right. And I don't think Americans would be very happy waiting. I don't think very many Americans would be happy. I don't think very many Kentuckians would be happy if they were told, well, I know you live in Paducah, but you've got to drive to the University of Louisville for an MRI. Well, I know you live in Harlan, but you have to drive to Lexington for an MRI because that's where those units will be located.
0: We, I mean, we don't we don't like it when Amazon messes up our two day ship. Imagine if you've got to wait four years to get a needed health surgery, and you're going to, have to spend four years in, you know, um, some level of constant pain. Yeah, it's it's not it's not it's, it's not something that this country would bear well.
1: Well, and if it's rationed by the government, you've now put your health care in. A system that has the efficiency of the postal service and the compassion of the DMV.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we've gotten off topic a little bit from General Assembly 22. Uh, we're 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 about up against our hours. I think we're a little bit over. But is is there? What's kind of the lasting thought you want to leave legislators with as, as they as they gavel in and, in a couple of weeks?
1: When we talk to our legislators, I want them to always know that. The Kentucky Hospital Association is a resource, and if they have questions or concerns about healthcare, we stand ready to talk to them, to work with them in helping to develop legislation. And while we know there are lots of loud voices on both sides that want to politicize everything, we are not coming at this from a political place. We're coming at it from a position of everything we want to do is in service of our patients. Our patients are the reason that we are in business, and serving our patients is our top priority. And so our patients and their constituents are the same people, so let's work together for the health of Kentuckians.
0: All right, Jim Musser from the Kentucky Hospital Association, thanks for being on with us today.
1: Thanks, Trey. It's a pleasure being with you, my friend.
0: Absolutely. And uh, as always, you can get Kentucky Politics Weekly wherever you stream podcasts. If you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to leave us a review. And uh, wherever you get your podcast, please be sure to give us a follow so you get that notification when there is a new podcast up. We should be back next week with one, potentially two more in our legislative preview series as we uh, head towards the new year. Uh, so we'll be back with you next week on a new Kentucky Politics Weekly.